Okay, so you're looking at uh, John chapter 2, right? And we are working our way through the life of Christ, A through Z. We come to letter G, uh, great guests at a wedding feast in Cana, the first miracle of Jesus as Messiah, water into wine. And we're going to see this, among other things. We're going to see that faith isn't just hoping something irrational happened or might happen. Faith, biblically speaking, both initial saving faith, active receptive trust in Jesus as Savior, as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become sons of God. And also growing, ongoing Christian life faith, which is active responsive trust to the one who has saved us. Christian faith isn't some kind of irrational, turn off your brain, wish wish fulfillment. It's rational trust in truth. It's rational trust in objective, albeit spiritual reality. And so that being true, I want you to notice this, Andrew, as we go through this whole series, but especially in this first miracle, Jesus intentionally, on purpose, goes out of his way, both by his unique words and his unique works, by his teachings and his touch, by his messages and his miracles, confirmed objectively, albeit supernaturally, praise God, that he is the unique person of the universe. You can't turn water into wine without uh, spontaneously creating carbon atoms and all kinds of different chemical bonds that you can't reproduce in a laboratory. But Jesus is, was, always will be the same yesterday, today, and forever is the God-man Savior. There's nobody like him on the pages of history. History revolves around him. Muhammad didn't have it all wrong, but he was just a person. Even the most uh, devout Muslim believes nothing more about Muhammad than just he was the ideal man. Uh, the Buddha didn't teach everything. Not everything he teaches is wrong. But he did leave his wife and his family at age 40 to find enlightenment, you know, and, and I bet the wife and the kiddies didn't appreciate that. Jesus is one person, two natures, to know a right. He is life eternal, and there is salvation and no other. There's no other name under heaven given among people whereby we must be saved. So Jesus' miracles uh, are not something the disciples made up after the fact. They were his calling card to confirm his unique claims uh, and the ultimate, I think, exclamation point on the mystery of Jesus is obviously his resurrection, which is the ultimate miracle, right? So we're going to see the first of 35 specific miracles recorded in the four Gospels and the first of seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John this morning. But let's uh, pray for teachability and troops. We, we've added a new soldier there, kind of bottom center there is Zach Smith, and he's about hopefully to turn sergeant. So we're very proud of Zach. And uh, peace officers, firefighters, and uh, yeah, let's pray for teachability for the ones who protect and serve, and continue to pray for the folks on the road, and really everybody as the Skinners leave and as the Wanderers leave. There's still a lot of summer travel people are going to be doing, so let's keep that in mind always. And Ken, if you will, uh, lead us in prayer in that direction, okay? Amen. Thank you. Uh, Three abstract thought warmer uppers, and I think they will do that nicely, unless I goof them up, like I goofed up that joke about Murray. Sorry about that, buddy. Uh, what do you call a bear with no teeth? A gummy bear. Thank you, Carol. Why do stadiums always get hotter after big games? All the fans leave. 
And then here's my favorite one. What kind of tea is the hardest to swallow? You're going to be an engineer, Murray. What kind of tea is the hardest to swallow? Reality. And one reality that's really hard for a depraved man to wrap their minds around is the fact that Jesus Christ is the center of all reality. He is the creator. He is the savior. He will be the consummator. Uh, he's the God-man savior. He's the exclusive issue in receiving eternal life, and he's the exclusive issuer. You can't get eternal life from anybody but him. Uh, he says all these things, validated by these miracles. Uh, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, unless you believe I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. He says that on the streets of Jerusalem. Um, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on that person. So we're daring to believe that in the beginning the Word, which is the title for Jesus, already existed eternally as the second person of the Trinity. In the Word, Jesus was with God the Father, but a distinct person from God the Father. And the Word was and always was deity. Everything that God the Father is in his character, everything the Holy Spirit is in his character, Jesus Christ is. And as we look at the life of Christ 8 through Z, we're looking at this portion about the Word becoming flesh, taking on humanity without ceasing to be deity, and living among us. Jack, Jesus was in the world, and the world had been made by him. But the world, by and large, didn't know him. He came into his own, the Jews, who should have been looking for him. But those who were his own did not receive him. But to every single one who does receive him, to them he give, gives the gift of eternal life to those who believe on his name. So we're working through the life of Christ A through Z. And uh, we've seen, uh, you tell me. A stands for angels announce the pregnancies of John the baptizing Jewish prophet, better known as John the ba- Baptist. But he was technically a Presbyterian. No, uh, he was, wasn't a Baptist. Uh, and the supernatural virgin conception of Jesus, right? A, angels announced. B, birth in Bethlehem, just like Micah the prophet predicted 700 years before. And we know that wasn't post-dated because we dug up the Dead Sea, not me, we, we dug up the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we've got Micah 5-2 there, carbon dated about 150 or 200 BCE. When you go to Israel, we'll go to a museum in Jerusalem, next to the Israeli museum called the Shrine of the Book. And you can see portions of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls really, really helped us in so many ways uh, to validate the reliability of the New Old Testament copying process. C stands for what? Carpentry career. Technically, Jesus was a tecton, a skilled worker in wood or stone. Uh, D and E go together at D, dove descends at the Duncan of the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the one the Old Testament said would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, be a spotlight. Uh, at that event, the righteousness of Christ was declared by the voice of God the Father. That's D, E, enemy entices, right of the baptism David. Jesus goes one-on-one, the last Adam goes one-on-one with Lucifer, not in the Garden of Eden, but in the wilderness. And through that process of temptation, the righteousness of Christ is demonstrated. At the baptism, the righteousness is declared. We don't know that much about Jesus between 12 and that event, but we know he's perfectly righteous, working as a tecton. And then at the temptation, E, enemy entices the righteousness of Christ is demonstrated. Last week we looked at F, first followers. 
After his temptation, Jesus goes back to where John the Baptist is doing his thing, getting people ready to receive Jesus. And as soon as John the Baptist sees Jesus, what does he say? On the flip side, that's the Lamb of God. That's him. And I know it because when I baptized him, I saw the dove and I saw and heard the voice of God the Father. And so we had the first five followers. And like I said last week, if you remember the word Bangladesh, uh, that's an acrostic. No, uh, it's China, isn't it? No, Thailand, that's Japan. John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are the first five followers. And then uh, today we're going to look at G, right? But uh, we're going to break it down this way. Great guests at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And let's start with the setting. Look at verse 1 and 2. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. On the third day, the third day after the events in the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 43 through 57, there was a wedding in the city of Cana in the region north of part of Israel called Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus had a mother. He was conceived through a virgin supernaturally, but she was the mother of his humanity, not the mother of God. And both Jesus and his disciples, now his disciples, how many disciples does he have right now? Five. Who are they? John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. They all fits together. And they were invited to the wedding, okay? Now, Cana is about nine, eight or nine miles north of Nazareth. We'll go there, Lord willing, next May. You can see it. Um, and I want you to notice something just that jumps out at you. He does this first miracle to keep a wedding reception going. You know, this isn't life and death kind of stuff. This isn't raising up a dead person or healing a blind man or something like that. This is just keeping a wedding reception going. Uh, Jesus did not avoid social activities. And in the case of this miracle we're going to read about, he actively associates with others where they're just hanging out, having a good time, rejoicing in the bride and the groom, you know? Um, in a, I, I like my wording here. It took, took me hours to come up with this. With others in a setting of rejoicing and good, clean fun. And, you know, there is... Cameron, you don't know me that well yet, but there is no off switch on the fun machine in my heart. I'm the most fun person I know. I'm nothing but fun, Okay. But also know you don't have to do anything illegal or immoral to have fun, right? And so I'm a, I'm a proponent for all the all the fun you can stand. You can ask my wife; she'll tell you about it. Let's put all this on a map because we're talking about real places, uh, real people, real events. A the announcement about John the Baptist coming through a supernormal pregnancy was announced to his dad by an angel in Jerusalem, and then the. Virgin conception was announced first to Mary and later Joseph up in Nazareth. That's A. B, birth in Bethlehem, right? Six miles south of Jerusalem, downhill all the way. C, carpentry career in and around Nazareth. D, dove descends at the Duncan right there near Jerusalem, kind of where the Jordan River enters the Dead Sea. That's where Jesus was baptized. Then enemy entices in the Jordanian uh, Jude- Jordanian, Jordanian, Judean wilderness, yeah, in, in and around Jerusalem. And then F is back where John the Baptist is baptizing. We had our first disciples last week, and now we're up, notice, uh, north of Nazareth, eight or nine miles in Cana of Galilee. Do you want to go to Cana? Anybody want to go? Well, we're going whether you want to or not. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, when you go to Cana, they've got... Uh, the first time we went to Washington, D.C., and if you haven't been there, man, you need to go to Washington, D.C., just to kind of see the layout and the monuments. And and even in the Jefferson Memorial, he's a deist. You know, he's not even a born-again Christian at all. Just the stuff he says about God and justice and truth 
chiseled into the walls. They're going to, they're eventually going to, uh, sandblast all that out because you can't believe the stuff Jefferson says. I mean, he wouldn't be electable now. He'd be a crazy radical Christian sounding person, Judeo-Christian thinker. But yeah, the first time I went to DC, I was amazed at all of the souvenir stands next to the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, at the Pentagon, souvenir, the Pentagon souvenir stand. I thought, how about that? You know, there just happened to be souvenir stands next to all the places they built these monuments and buildings. It's crazy, you know? And you have this, a little bit of that at some of the biblical sites, and this is one of them. But there's another map. I like different kind of maps, of course. Nazareth uh, there, where Jesus was at Tecton. That's his hometown. Then north a little bit. That's us, our tour group, uh, outside of a church built uh, in Cana to remember this miracle. They're actually doing active archaeology under that church. It's kind of like they built the church and went, whoops, there's actually some archaeological remains we need to check out. So they just kind of scooped out the center of the church floor and they're doing archaeology right there at the church. Now we're going to talk about Jesus having uh, these stone water pots filled with water, and they're really big. So don't think of just little water pots, you know, a gallon or something like that. But uh, there one is, and uh, not the exact one, but one like it. But that doesn't help you unless you have a person next to it, right? So there's Julie Miller, and she's like, what, three foot, she's three, three, five foot tall. So she's not the tallest thing in the world, but it's a pretty tall water pot, okay? Now, um, when we go to Israel, there are authentic sites, and there are traditional sites. Most of the traditional sites were identified by Helena, the mother of, uh, um, help me, uh, who was the first, Const- Constantine. The Emperor Constantine became a Christian in 313, sent his mother in 325 to find out where all the events took place in Israel. And in some places, the steps of the temple are authentic sites, but some of these places are traditional sites where like this, they built a church where the ascension took place, supposedly, according to somebody in 325, which we don't know exactly where it took place, somewhere Mount of Olives. So anyway, all these shops, they want you to buy uh, stuff from, trinkets, or exactly where the first uh, miracle took place, right on the very spot. But the problem is, like, five, there's like five of them. So they're, they're probably not all right. But I will say, since I don't really drink a lot of wine, but I do enjoy steaks, uh, if you want to get on my good side the day we visit Cana, take me to the Cana Steakhouse, and I'll be one happy boy. Okay? Uh, go back to the text there. So it's the third day of the sequence that we left off into chapter 1. There's a wedding. And we're going to say a wedding here doesn't mean what a wedding meant in, means in modern English. We'll show you what that means. But notice Jesus and his disciples, and we know what their, their names are. There's five of them right now. We're invited to the wedding. You need to know that uh, according to Mormonism, this was the first of many weddings Jesus attended because he was the groom. But uh, there's no evidence Jesus was ever married, and it just seems strange to me to say that Jesus and his friends were invited to his wedding, because I don't remember getting a wedding invitation to come to mine. I was just supposed to show up, you know. I'm not that smart, but I knew I was supposed to show up for that, right? Now, wedding doesn't mean what we mean by wedding in uh, modern uh, American culture. And, you know, we did this recently. When you read about Asia in the New Testament, you read about uh, Paul goes to Asia during the third missionary journey, we tend to think of Asia the way we use the term, but the New Testament uses it for a small section of what we'd call Turkey. That was the Roman province of Asia. That's the modern continent of Asia. They're not the same thing. And in fact, if you look at the modern map and you black out where uh, New Testament Asia was, was is right, that little bit 
of the western tip of Turkey, right? We said the same thing for church. You've got to interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written. When the New Testament talks about church, it doesn't talk about a building or a denomination. It uses a particular term that means a called out or selected group of people, and it can refer to the capital C church. Every born-again Christian, regardless of color, country, culture, denomination, generation, is part of the universal body of Christ. It transcends cultures and denominations. Um, and uh, local church people need to remember that sometimes. And sometimes uh, when Paul says, I'm writing to the church in Colossae, he's talking to the group of believers in a little city called Colossae, probably less than 50 people that would meet on the Lord's Day to do church, Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, and evangelism kind of thing. So that's our setting, and let me just say that weddings today typically refer to the actual ceremony where vows are made, uh, rings are exchanged, and a pronouncement. I present to you Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Steve Skinner, you know. That's the wedding. Now, separate from the wedding ceremony, but usually directly related to it, quite often in the same basic venue, we have another event immediately following called a reception. But we... We would not call the wedding reception a wedding the way that the New Testament authors do because in first century Israel, the pattern, the custom was for the bride and the groom to do what we call the wedding ceremony, the vows, the exchange of rings, the pronouncement in a very intimate circle of closest family and friends in a private ceremony. That's where they got married. That was the wedding and then after that, the family and friends in the whole neighborhood would be invited to a celebration, what we would call a mega reception today, that would last a whole day or two or three or more. It was a big, big deal in the social context to celebrate the importance of marriage and the uh, the bride and the groom. So that's what we're looking at there. That's uh, the setting. Now notice it says in verse 2, Jesus and his disciples, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Those are the five disciples, okay? So that's the setting. Let's look at the setback, verses three through five. And when the and when the wine ran out, and really uh, you could translate that after the wine ran out. It, they don't typically run out of wine or refreshments, and this is more like Kool Aid than something you could get drunk on. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the refreshments have run out, and this is a big social faux pas. This is big time stuff as far as social standing and stigma. It's not life or death, but it still would hurt, and it, it might even have a financial cost associated with it. When the wine ran out, after the wine ran out, which is a disaster under those circumstances in that setting, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they're out of wine. They don't have any more wine. This is a big problem for them. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? That's an an unusual Greek phrase. We'll tell you what it means here in a second. Uh, my hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to do public sign miracles quite yet. There's two things I want to do before I do that. So I'm not going to do this the way you think I should, Mom. And his mother said, notice she didn't take that as a no. Carol, Mary doesn't take verse 4 as a no because she just looks at the servants there, the caterer people, whatever he says, you do it. I'm not sure how he's going to do it, but I think he's going to take care of the problem. Okay? So that's the setback. I apologize for making setback two words in your handout. You know, what can I say? My spell checker didn't correct me until last night late as I looked at my PowerPoint at the last segment. Setback is one word, just so you'll know. I don't want to mess you up, Jamie, okay? See, she's going to have setback as a spelling word, and she's going to put it as two words, and she's going to get it wrong because of what I did on the handout. Uh, wine ran out. Mary announces the bad news. 
I put in your notes, when Mary informs and quotes Jesus of the refreshment issue, why did I put in Mary informing Jesus in quotes? Why did I say it that way? You think he already knew? You think he's like blissfully unaware of the status quo until Mary <laughs> fills him in? He knows what's going on, right? So you're not informing him about anything. Now, God knows what we need before we ask. You, know, you, you realize you're not informing God. So if you get the room number wrong on your cousin in Schenectady, God can still find her you know, in the hospital. Don't worry about that. When Mary informs Jesus of the refreshment issue, he politely informs her this was not the proper setting for his public sign ministry. But as I say, she doesn't take his response as a no. We'll talk about this idiom that is being used in a minute. But he's basically saying, I'm going to do this differently than you expect me to. Kind of, and probably winked at her with a smile, James. I'm, you know, we're going to find out. He probably winked at her with a smile on his face, like, watch this. You know, I'm going to do it, but not the way you're expecting me to do it. And, you know, I, when I saw that, I thought, this is the, quite often God answers your prayers like that, Wendy. You know, you may ask for something and you think there's one way or you're thinking one main mechanism. And quite often, God gives us the desires of our hearts, but differently than we ask, and certainly quite differently in time frame than we expect. So don't fail to appreciate that kind of dynamic. Okay. Now, if you don't know about Bible.org, you need to know about Bible.org. It was started uh, 15 years ago by some Dallas Seminary guys, and it's one of the best free locations to get uh, biblical study materials, if you want to kind of go directly to the text yourself. Uh, that's a snip from uh, when you go to their homepage, Bible.org, and click on Lumina. You can tell whatever text you want to look at, and I chose John chapter 2. And it, it gives you, that's the Net 2 Bible, um, but they've got like five or six different translations you can select, and it will give you textual notes. Uh, I know Steve Skinner appreciates that. But if you go from uh, that side of the screen to the other side of the screen, uh, you get uh, this commentary, this kind of interesting commentary on the thing. I've got that to automatically switch, I think. But notice it says, uh, uh, talking about and commentating on uh, what Mary says in verse 3, they have no wine, uh, or they have no wine left. Uh, the commentary says, on the background of this mir- miracle, a scholar I'd never heard of, J.D.M. Derrett, pointed out, among other things, the strong element of reciprocity about weddings in the ancient Near East. It was possible in certain circumstances to take legal action by the bride and groom against anybody who failed to provide an appropriate wedding gift. Talk about pressure. You get sued for not giving a nice enough wedding gift, but it also worked the other way. The bridegroom and family here might have been involved in a financial liability for failing to provide adequate refreshments. Can you imagine? You think this is a litigious society? Back then, just going to a wedding reception might involve a couple of calls to your lawyer. I mean, it's craziness. But my point is, uh, in addition to being horribly socially embarrassing, no pressure, but, you know, a wedding reception without a cake just isn't a wedding reception. So really, you two are the most important factors. I'm the minister, listen, I found out a long time ago, ministers at weddings are exactly like the home plate umpire at, at a baseball game. They can't do it without you, but nobody notices you unless you make a big mistake. I mean, really, the umpire is invisible until he makes a mistake. Right, Andrew? 
and then people yell at you and stuff. So, uh, there's, ministers are dime a dozen. You can get anybody to marry you nowadays. But to get somebody to bring a really good cake that doesn't flop or flip or drop it. And I think they work so hard on their cakes. I think the real pressure is getting it from the cake shop to the venue, isn't it? What if you drop it? Or what if something falls on it or something? Man, that's, that's scary. But anyway, this is a, this is a big deal. And as I say, it's not life or death, but it's socially lethal, hugely embarrassing, and could result in some kind of lawsuit where they're having to, this married couples having to pay a bunch of money, uh, for the grievance against the lack of refreshments. Now look at verse four. Uh, you've got an unusual Greek construction here that nobody quite knows what to do with. And the New American Standard translates it, what does that have to do with us? And that's a good try. But let's talk about idioms, okay? Idioms, you find these in all languages, and they're expressions that don't mean what they literally mean, but everybody knows what you mean when you use them. So let me give you some examples. And I came up with this label all by myself. Idioms are not for idiots, right? Early Saturday morning, at least at our house, Blanche didn't get it, but about 2 o'clock in the morning, Saturday, Friday night, Saturday morning, we got a nice big rain, big thunder and all kinds of stuff. At least I heard it. Maybe I dreamed it. I don't know. But uh, Early Saturday morning, it was raining cats and dogs. That's my favorite idiom. Uh, now, if a thousand years from now, uh, the Lord were to tarry, archaeologists were to dig something that up, like that up, they're going to say, see, evangelical Christian preachers like Brad McCoy are dangerous because he thinks small animal, animals Small mammals come out of the sky when it rains, right? I don't mean really cats and dogs. I mean it's really raining hard, right? Using dental floss to keep my teeth clean is a piece of cake. I thought about you when I came up with that one. You know? That's kind of a weird figure of speech because eating a piece of cake doesn't really keep your teeth clean, right? But using dental floss can. Makes it, makes it easy, right? Makes it easy. That's what that means, right, Tommy? Okay. Just making sure. Uh, in regard to the weather, all the farmers and ranchers, um, did y'all get any rain this past weekend? Powers? Oh man, sorry. Um, in regard to the weather, all the ranchers, farmers in our area are in the same boat. Now that's a tough idiom to use during a drought. We're all in the same boat. And again, that would be easily misunderstood by English as second language people, but we are English as first language people. We know what that means. So, look at the Greek text. Uh, you're looking at that, and the white part is, uh, uh, you know, what to me and to you, woman, basically, is what it says. Uh, Jesus said to her, what to me and to you, woman, gune is the word uh, for woman. It doesn't mean women are guni, it just means that's just what the Greek word is. But in this context, I'm going to translate it ma'am. This is not disrespectful. She doesn't take offense, nor does she take it as a no. She just means, she takes it. As if she thinks it means this, which is what I think it means. Jesus said to her, what this is, what this calls for is different to and for me than it is for you, ma'am. So watch this, okay? I'm going to psychoanalyze Mary. And, I, and I'm, I'm treading on, on thin ice here, Ken, trying to psychoanalyze anybody. But i got a feeling Mary, does Mary know for sure Jesus is the Messiah? How would she know for sure? <laughs> yeah, but from the get-go. He's now 30 years old, and he hasn't done any ministry. Now, he's done a lot of ministry, in fact, right? Because we have a comprehensive sense of ministry. But he hasn't done nothing yet. Now, he has been gone for a while. He identified with John the Baptist, or so she was told. 
He was gone for a couple months after that, went back to John the Baptist. Now he's hit town with five followers, okay? And I think mom is thinking, this is the perfect opportunity, not just to help these folks in this situation, but for you to have the grand opening of your ministry. There's a bunch of fancy, rich people in the Galilean sense. They don't hold a, 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 you know, a candle to the people around Jerusalem. But in the Galilean culture, a lot of the local big shots are here, including probably the mayor. And so you can do a big miracle, solve the social problem, and kick your ministry off with a big public miracle. You know, we're going to kill three birds with one stone here, right? And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do my first major visible public miracle in this setting because I have two things I want to do before I do that in Jerusalem in the near future. So I'm going to do this differently than you think. What this is calls for something different. It is and calls for something different for me than it is for you. She's seeing this, and you can ask her in heaven, and I could be wrong. I'm not pounding the pulpit on this but I'm 99% sure she's thinking, do a big public miracle, impress the crowd, get your ministry rolling here, boy. I mean, come on, I've been waiting here for 30 years for you to get this thing going. So like any good mom, you know, get up there and take a, you know, if you strike out a couple of times, get out there and do it again, you know, kind of thing. Why would I want to strike out again? I remember one time I struck out four times in a row, one of the few times my parents came to one of my ball games. And my dad was very disappointed, but not as much as I was. I struck out four times in a row, man. But I did foul off a couple, so I made contact. But that was that was a bad day. Uh, that's why I decided to become a pitcher. Not <laughs> I won't have to bat as much. But anyway, yeah, that's what that is. Now watch this. When you look at the overall trajectory of the ministry of Christ, it looks like this. Almost immediately after this first miracle, which is a miracle, it's a supernatural miracle. You can't do it in the lab, but it's done very subtly. After this, he's going to, in verse 12 have a family retreat where he's going to look at his brothers in the eyes and say, just so you know, this is who I am and this is why I'm here. No, this before he starts the grand opening to the ministry. He does that in verse 12. Everybody misses that. Then he goes to Jerusalem and he does miracles and puts the temple out of business for a day. And Nicodemus says, hey, we know you must be from God because the signs you're doing, the big public miracles you're doing, prove you're from God. But we don't want you to be the Messiah. So, you know, the ministry of Christ basically divides into two parts. Right after John 2, the first half of John 2, Jesus starts drawing the crowds and doing big public miracles, starting in Jerusalem, proclaiming to the nation of Israel he is who the, 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 the Old Testament promise would come. Then the leaders are forced to explain him away. How do they explain Jesus' miracles away? He didn't actually do them. It's all sleight of hand. They didn't say that. What they say about Jesus' miracles? satanically empowered. And that's a capital crime. And so after that, he starts, continues to do miracles in response to faith or need, but he's not publicizing them anymore. Don't tell anybody about this. I'll do this, but don't tell anybody, because the more miracles he does, since it's being interpreted as satanic works, the more evidence they have, quote-unquote, against him. Okay? Uh, let's look at the subtle sign. Watch this, Mary. This isn't what you think it is, a chance for me to publicly impress everybody. I'm going to deal with the problem, and I'm going to wait on doing the big public ministries. So let me do this subtly. Only a few people will see it, and uh, it won't be a big uh, publicity thing. Now, there were six stone water pots, like the one Julie was tipping, towing, looking into, you know, like five foot tall, 
containing lots of water, in a room for lots of water, 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to the servants who have just let Mary know they're out of wine, Mary apparently is either a distant relative or a really close friend to the bridal party. That's the solution to that, I think. And uh, he says, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now, what does that mean, Doug? Why is it important that they filled them up to the brim? There's no room for him to put Kool-Aid or anything in to make it look like wine or something like that. And it also sounds to me like an eyewitness. Okay, now when we say the first five followers are John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel, I don't really know it's John because in that passage in John 1, it just says another disciple. But almost everybody assumes it's John because he didn't like to talk about himself in person. It sounds to me like John's one of the five here, and he remembers that distinctly. He saw that. He's wondering, too, at the time, what's going on here. He's filling that up with water. We're going to have room temperature water to serve the guests. You're going to get sued. And John's thinking, you're going to get sued here, right? Fill them up to the brim. Sounds like an eyewitness recollection. And then Jesus said immediately, draw some of that out now and take it to the MC. Take it to the guy in charge of the catering and the refreshments. So he took it to him. When the head waiter, the MC, uh, tasted the water which had become wine. That's John giving you what happened. Uh, you know, in the New Testament, there's no attempt to explain these mechanisms. There's no uh, abracadabra, magic words, incantations, yelling and shouting like you have in pagan literature. Jesus just does these things supernaturally. You can't reproduce it. You can't understand it. Uh, it transcends the normal laws of physics, and he's got the right to do that. By the way, do airplanes disprove the law of gravity? You've stopped believing in gravity because of the Wright brothers. No, a higher law, aerodynamics, temporarily overrides the law of gravity. But the law of gravity is pulling on that plane the entire time. That's a bad, that's a bad thing to mention before you guys fly out. Are y'all guys flying to Michigan? Just remember, an airplane is a collection of nine flying parts bolted together. We gotta pray for that flight, man. Uh, so, just, John just saying, he said, fill them up. And then he said, okay, give it to the head waiter. The problem solved. He's doing it as subtly as possible, James. He's not, you know, saying, watch this, everybody. I'm going to do a miracle. I'm the Messiah. Uh, he'll do later things like feeding the 5,000, which was really 12,000. That was done in public to prove he's the Messiah. This is really to nail down the faith of the disciples to meet the need. And because of time and place, he didn't want to promote it. So when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, but he did not know where it came from, the servants did, but the head waiter is running around looking for his lawyer probably. Uh, the uh, head waiter called the bridegroom and said, hey, every man typically serves the freshest, the best tasting wine first, and after people have had their taste buds dulled, then they serve the really the best stuff, the freshest stuff, but you saved it till the end. This is toward the end of the process uh, as mentioned there. Now, the reason for the subtlety of this sign is because Jesus wants to, A, verse 12, go to Capernaum and have a private family retreat before he has the official start of his ministry to make sure everybody knows what he's doing and why he's doing it, even though the brothers don't believe until after the resurrection, some of them. And some never believe at all, apparently. And then he wants to do the first major public miracles in Jerusalem for obvious reasons. That's where the temple is. That's where you're supposed to be looking for the Messiah. So he starts there, right? But, uh, you know, we said that wedding in the Bible isn't really talking about the ceremony. It's talking about the reception, right? Uh, the word wine in the Bible doesn't mean what we mean by wine. Uh, undiluted, fermented grape juice 
was, wasn't called wine, it was called strong drink. And in fact, I didn't realize this, but, and I didn't go directly to Josephus first, but I was doing some research this week, and Josephus calls undiluted fermented grape juice, he calls it pagan drink. In fact, it, sometimes they say only the Scythians would drink stuff like that. It's just too powerful. Wine in the Bible did include some fermented beverage. This isn't Kool-Aid. It includes some fermented grape juice, but it was diluted one part uh, uh, wine to four parts water, uh, one to five, one to ten, or one to twenty. That's the number according to Geisler. One to five, one to ten, one to twenty. So it's diluted 80% water, 90% water, or 95% water. Um, why would they do that? Why would they drink fermented stuff watered down like that? Because it was difficult, and in some cases during the year, impossible to find good water that wouldn't make you really sick. You've heard of Montezuma's Revenge? This would be called uh, Elijah's Revenge. Yeah, it's a problem, because it only rains in January and February uh, through most of Israel, and so you've got cistern water, you've got river water, river water, the animals go to the bathroom in there. Uh, they do all kinds of stuff in the river water. You can boil it, but it's hard and difficult. So you've got either cistern, saving whatever rainwater, which doesn't last very much in the year, or you're drinking this other stuff. So they figured out pretty quickly the only way to kill off the germs and improve the taste, uh, but not really put you in jeopardy for intoxication, was to do this kind of system, 1, 5, 1, 10, or 1, 20. So it'd be very difficult to become intoxicated before multiple trips to the restroom, which is what Norman Geisler said. If you don't like it, I have his email. You can write him. That's what that is. But it's not Kool-Aid for sure. The setting, the setback, the subtle sign. Now the spiritual significance. And I want to read 11, which is the spiritual significance, and 12 together, because I think 12 tends to get overlooked. It's easy to get excited about verse 1 through 11, first miracle. Easy to get excited about 13 through 25, the first trip to Jerusalem at the beginning of the ministry. Verse 12 often gets overlooked and not even commented on by some major commentators. I don't believe it, man. But we're going to link this miracle and the way Jesus did it with verse 12 directly. So let's read 11 and 12 together and then we'll comment. Uh, this, the water into wine, which is scientifically incredibly uh, powerful, but he did it very subtly, not to impress anybody in a public sense. This beginning of his signs, that's a, mere, a word in the Greek that means works done to, uh, uh, let me just uh, get the exact definition there I want, if I can find it here. That word translates, simeon, refers to works or actions done to point toward and or to confirm something. And that's the term John uses for the miracles he records in his gospel. These things were not done uh, arbitrarily, but to prove, to validate the claims Jesus has about himself. This beginning of a sign miracles, but a subtle sign miracle, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. It really happened in real places. He's talking about real places because it really happened. And manifested his glory, manifested the powers of his deity, and his disciples believed in him. Now, those guys had already believed he's Messiah, but they're being confirmed in their faith the more they know about the power of Jesus. Okay, this is Christian life faith being confirmed, right? After this, after this subtle miracle, Jesus, and before he goes to Jerusalem and really kicks off his ministry with public miracles, as well as messages, after this he went down to Capernaum, which is the fishing village he ends up making at the base of his operations, about 17 miles away from Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers 
and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And I think he's just sitting them down and saying, look, guys, this is what the deal is. You've known I'm different. Here's who I am. I am the Messiah. And then James and Judah gone, no, don't believe it. Uh, we see them as being very reluctant to believe. They would go on to write books of the Bible. Which book did James write? If you say, First Peter, you're in trouble. Which book did Jude? One of his brothers' name was Judas, but it wasn't Iscariot. He wrote the book of Jude, right? So after the resurrection, they come into the fold, but that's what happens there. Look back at verse 11. Yeah, that word is a very specific word. It's a pointer. And I want you to notice that who he was is confirmed not just by what he said, but what he did. He does these these miracles, and he emphasizes that's the reason he's doing the miracles. In John 5, 36 to 38, Jesus says, The ministry which I have is greater than John's, John the Baptist's. For the works, these miracles I do. John did no miracles. John the Baptist didn't do any miracles. Um, For the works which the Father has given to me to do, these very works I do to testify about me. I'm doing these miracles to prove what I'm saying about myself is true. Uh, He stresses this in John 10. Uh, I love that John 10 passage, which is Jesus in Jerusalem for the Hanukkah celebration in December of 32, a few months before his crucifixion. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication, we call it Hanukkah today, took place at Jerusalem. It's not a required feast for Jesus to go to. It's dangerous for him to be in Jerusalem, but he goes anyway because he's a patriotic Jewish man. And Jesus was walking around the temple, and the Jewish leaders gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? You haven't told us clearly enough who you are. Now, he's told them so clearly they've decided to reject him as a satanically possessed false prophet and kill him. They just want him to say more stuff in public they can use against him. So that's an insulting question. It's implying he hasn't done enough. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, if you're the Savior, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And the Lord says, I have told you. And you do not believe. Not my problem, your problem. But to add to all that, which is more than sufficient, the works, the miracles, me healing the blind man, you know, uh, a few days before that, that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And then Jesus also says in John 6, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. If I can't do supernatural works like no one else, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, my message, you're not prone to believe, believe because of the works. This idea that sign faith isn't legit is contradicted by uh, Scripture. Say me realize the Father is in me and I in him. Now, real quick, we're almost done. Look at John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Most of the biblical books have a purpose statement in them, sometimes at the beginning, middle, or toward the end. The key statement, the purpose statement, why John's writing this book before he writes his last chapter as an epilogue, is in the last part of uh, the body of the book. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs, miracles that validate Jesus' claim, Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I saw Jesus do in this book. It's very selective. But these, and he's talking about the seven uh, sign miracles in the body, first part of the body of the book. But these, starting with the water and the wine, have been written in this book. So you can see them, not directly, but through the medium of Scripture here, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior. You believe in him for eternal life. The Son of God, believing you have life in his name. So uh, there are actually eight major miracles of Jesus, plus the resurrection in the Gospel of John, 
But when he's writing his theme statement here, he's referring to the seven that he specifically recorded, not to the special catch of fish out here, which is one of my favorite miracles, not to the resurrection per se, but to the works Jesus did leading up to the cross that confirm his teaching that he is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. Here, here are the, the uh, seven miracles. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. Uh, they go from, these are in order uh, chronologically, and they also become more and more spectacular. It's one thing to turn water into wine, which is scientifically impossible without other you know, factors, but when you're raising blind people, or dead people and healing blind men, that's one miracle is never found in the Old Testament. Nobody ever heals a blind man uh, in the Old Testament. But uh, Lazarus is, the resuscitation of Lazarus is the climactic one. And that's what he's referring to. There are a lot of other things Jesus did. Other miracles, uh, there are 35 specific miracles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John only gives you seven plus the eighth in the epilogue. But these are written for a purpose. There's more than sufficient for that purpose, right? So boom. Look at verse 12 again, and we will finish. After this, after that event in Cana, which was unforgettable for the disciples, uh, the five, he goes to Capernaum to have this special retreat, and it shows his respect uh, and concern for his uh, biological family, his half-brothers, as it were, and extended family, uh, to before the pressures of public ministry and becomes famous, and it's going to be hard to get to him because of the crowds initially. He wants to make sure they're uh, aware of what he's doing there. So take this to heart. Number one, when you read your Bible, you're talking about real people, real events, and real places, like Cain of Galilee. Um, and consistent with that, Jesus goes out of his way through his words and his works, through his messages and his miracles, to confirm what he's claiming to be, the unique person of the universe, the God-man Savior, the, the Lamb of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, both his works, miraculous works, and his teaching are designed to make seeing and hearing him, whether you're seeing him in person, what a blessing, blessing that would have been. But did everybody who see Jesus, saw Jesus, believe in him? Uh-uh. Everybody saw, that saw miracles with their own eyes, did they all believe in him? No. Uh, we don't see him directly, we see him through scripture just as good. The Holy Spirit makes that work. But I think all of this together is encouraged, designed to encourage unbelievers to trust in him for salvation. Uh, this is the will of my Father, everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him, not just sees Him physically, but through the reality of Scripture, uh, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up in the last day. That's great, isn't it? And then, uh, and we'll close with this. Look at, keep saying we're going to close, right? Look at John 8, verse 30. Light of the world discourse in Jerusalem, as He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. That's saving faith. So Jesus said to those, which was a small percentage of the overall crowd, but it was not a small number. It was not just two. It was probably 22 or 32 or 42. A good many came to believe in him. Jesus was saying to those who believed in him, if you continue in my word, if you abide in my word, then you're going to be disciples in the full sense, in the ideal sense. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So Jesus has done more than enough to confirm who he is. And so my prayer is, if you're here, you've never trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you can and should do that. He is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life. And through faith in him, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it, Lord. I believe you died and paid for my sins and rose again. And my only hope for salvation is what you've done for me. I receive you as my Savior. And then for most of us who are believers, 
It's all about abiding in Him, abiding in His Word, active, responsive trust to the One who has saved us. So, of course, He's our Lord and our consummator and our Savior and our best friend. And uh, it's not just wish fulfillment. It's trust in facts and truth. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank You for testifying to the uniqueness of Christ from Genesis through Revelation. As we come to this very holy ground of the Gospel of John, we see this uh, this miracle, which the Lord does so skillfully and so wisely uh, to fit into his overall purpose and plan, and yet clearly is doing an act of supernatural creation, just like he did from the very beginning. And I do pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would move to open hearts to see and believe in Christ. For many of us, just help it to strengthen our faith and help us to grow as we continue to abide in the one who is our Lord, our Savior, our best friend, and our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.